But it has been a few weeks, right? We had our awesome Christmas service. We had that incredible sharing service last week. But it's been three weeks since we've been in this sermon series. So a brief reintroduction. We are in a series called Shalom. And we are talking about being at peace with our portion. And this idea of shalom could take up an entire year, but we're trying to nail it down by asking four questions. Are you at peace with yourself? Are you at peace with others? Are you at peace with creation? And are you at peace with God? And when Pastor Fred examined this question of are you at peace with yourself some weeks ago, he, he, he asked this question, are we at peace with our unchangeables? Those things we were born into. And tonight as we speak about finding shalom as peace with God, I'd ask, are we at peace with his unknowables? The unknowables of God. And to introduce this idea, I'll again point repeatedly tonight to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29. And again, that verse needs context. Deuteronomy is like, Moses' farewell speech to the Israelites. He's about to pass away. The Israelites are about to go into the promised land. And Deuteronomy, again, kind of serves as this farewell speech where he, he, he goes over their history and the many, many lessons they learned through their history. And he says in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, that the Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them. But we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us so that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. Let's pray briefly. Lord God, I pray tonight that you would guide us in your instructions, that you would even, as it speaks to, reveal more truths about you, reveal more of yourself to us so that we can walk more in lockstep with you, Jesus. <laughs> and as we were singing, it's all about you. So God, I pray you would use me as Moses did Aaron to simply be your mouthpiece. Let it be your words and your truth tonight. And we simply say, do what you will in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. But I was on a different platform uh, last week, the platform formerly known as uh, Twitter. <laughs> and I was reading some tweets about a book that I was considering reading, as if I had time to read. <laughs> but uh, somebody posted a screenshot of a page of the book and was explaining, this is what it says, this is what it means, this is the significance. And, and of course, one of the first comments was, well, actually, I, I disagree with you, that's wrong and why they were wrong, and then they humbly posited at the end that unless the author themselves weigh in, we will probably never know. And of course, she replied to him, I am the author. <laughs> For all of social media's warts and the reasons I hardly get on anymore, those moments are the ones that make my day. Where it is a doctor, a historian, a scientist, somebody with their PhD and decades of experience explaining something, and then somebody with name, bunch of numbers, handle is like, you're wrong. And they're like, oh, actually, I wrote the book, or I did that study. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's great. It's also frustrating, but it's hilarious. And what's crazy is so often when people realize that they'll double down regardless and keep arguing. And we saw the birth of this trend in the 90s when chat rooms opened and you could comment on articles. It's what the, the sociologist and author Peter Senge coined expert delusion, where what used to take years of mentoring and schooling and, and hands-on experience and hands in the dirt, we feel we arrive at after a couple articles and, and maybe a video. We'll watch some news, we'll read some articles, and then our tone will graduate from somebody with a, a mere informed opinion to that of an expert in the field. Why do we have this inclination? Why do people even double down after the, the realization? But I, for one, believe that we have a deep-rooted fear of simply saying, I don't know. I don't know. Like, when's the last time you, you saw online somebody was like, you know what? I don't actually know enough about this subject to have an opinion or, or, or comment on it. So 
I don't have a comment. <laughs> no, there is this, this pressure to have an opinion and a stance on every item of the day. And I share this for a reason, because I believe this fear of admitting that we don't know can creep into our relationship with God. See, this study and this term expert delusion was tied to issues that hinder organizational growth. And similarly, I believe it can hinder our relationship with God, can cripple our peace with God and, and our shalom. Because if you've come to City Life for more than 10 minutes, you've probably heard us say that we all have this deep desire to know God and be known by him. See, the beautiful thing is we don't just have to know about God because of some sermons and some books. We can know him, have relationship with him. Not just know about him, but know him. And the beautiful thing, too, is God has this same desire so much that he sent his son Jesus. So we could have a vibrant relationship with him. This is beautiful and this is comforting. But the thing that's uncomfortable about this pursuit of knowing God is we never will fully. Never. Come close. See, the beauty is that, that God is profoundly intimate, right? He knows and cares about every detail of your life. He doesn't just know about it. He loves you and cares. Again, that's why he sent his son. He's close. He's Emmanuel, God with us, imminent, but he's also transcendent, right? God is infinitely powerful. So again, we all have this desire to know God and be known by him, and the comfort tonight is we can know him, but what makes us uncomfortable is we never will fully, and I'll never forget one of my favorite authors, Brennan Manning, in one of his books, he quotes a, a, a monk from Holland who once admitted that 21 years I have prayed and meditated with the monks of the Abbey, hours and hours of the day and night. And yet I hope I do not shock or scandalize anybody. God was really unknown to me. It's not that he was saying he didn't have a relationship with God, but understanding God, not even close. <laughs> His humble admission of God's divine incomprehensibility echoes the words of Thomas Aquinas, who said, the highest knowledge of God is to know that we don't know God. We're never going to fully know or understand God. And like that monk said, that might scandalize our perspectives at first. It might initially shake your shalom, but let's dig into that tonight, because we will only truly find peace with God when we're at peace with his unknowables. And we see in Exodus 33, right? It's Moses speaking in Deuteronomy. And in Exodus 33, Moses is speaking to God. And he makes God promise to continue to be present with the Israelites because they screwed up big time, right? He had gotten the Ten Commandments. They had the golden calf, all the madness at Mount Sinai. And he's like, God, please do not send us if you're not going to go with us. Don't send us on this journey if you're not going to be present with us. And God says, yes, I promise you my presence. But then we see moments later, Moses is like, let me see your glory, right? Let me see your essence. And God says, you can't see my face, for no man can see me and live. Real Raiders of the Lost Ark vibes, right? Nazis' faces melting. But Moses continued faithfully following God and led the Israelites at peace with this relationship with God. He was obedient to what God had made clear and at peace with what remained a mystery. Walking in his presence, but never fully seeing his essence. And it's how he could say in his farewell address to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 29 that the Lord our God has secrets known to no one. We are not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us. And the point is, in regards to this quote and what we're talking about tonight, in order to find shalom, specifically peace with God, I have to find a peace with the fact that God is unfathomable, incomprehensible, 
that the Lord has secrets and mysteries known to no one. And the presence of mystery is one of two things I want to consider tonight that can rob us of our shalom, specifically our peace with God. Because we see God's mystery and divine incomprehensibility all throughout Scripture, not just with Moses. You turn to the book of Isaiah, it's full of it. My favorite is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where he says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Or if you, you, you turn to Isaiah 40, he says, To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? God sits above the circle of the earth, and the people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. Now, contrast those verses with the inclination in our culture to speak with ludicrous levels of familiarity with God. You've probably heard of some of these in their remixes. The God I know would, would never say that. The God I worship would never do that, command that, permit that, to which I think, are you sure about that? Because his thoughts, his ways are so much higher than ours and mine. We are all too quick to let go of God's overwhelming otherness because we deeply desire to make God like us, do what we would do, decide what we would decide, but he isn't like us. And as a result, so many of us live with this thin layer of distrust this thin lack of shalom because we cave to this impulse to turn God into something familiar when he certainly is not. You know, I had a parenting fail the other day. I lost my cool with Raj. Got him on the bus. And I was sitting there on the stairs all emotional, like just looking at the wall, like, oh, you know, like I, just upset. And, and I was thinking in that moment, God, I want to love more like you, right? I don't want God to parent me like I parent my child. I want to parent my child more like God the Father loves us, not vice versa. My prayer that morning, my prayer most days is, God, help me to love Raj with the love of God the Father. Help me to love Steph with the love of Jesus for his bride, and help me to love Raj with the love of God the Father. Because we like God, Abba, Father, right? His unconditional love, praise him for that, right? We love God, the good, good Father, as we sang 11 trillion times years ago in that song, and the, and the bridge of that song said repeatedly, you are perfect in all of your ways. That's easy to sing when his ways are our ways. But God tells us in Isaiah, my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. And when we walk in that, sometimes that bridge can be a sacrifice of praise. I remember listening to that song in the car in a season where Steph and I were dealing with infertility. She had just had an early miscarriage. We're three and a half years into a, a international adoption that seemed like it was going to be never-ending. They were still saying, hey, it's going to be like four years with a trend of increasing, which means hurry up and wait for another half decade. And I remember I'm listening to that song in the car for, again, like the hundredth time, and the Holy Spirit just begged the question, would you still call me a good, good father if you never have a kid that can call you one? And in that moment, that was me coming to peace with my portion. But it was also me coming to peace with God, specifically God's sovereignty. Because God's sovereignty speaks to his rule and his guidance over all the events of life. His provision, his purposes for us. God's sovereignty in a nutshell is, hey, God is in control. As we sang tonight, he's the king on the throne. He's, control. he's in control, no doubt. 
But where we can lose shalom and peace with God's sovereignty is there are so many moments in life where we know exactly what we would do (laughs) if we were in control. But what happens to your trust and your faith and your peace with God when his ways prove higher? Altogether other. See, I've never really clung to a verse as like a life verse, but I would say in the last decade, I've thought about Deuteronomy 29, 29 a lot. Because there's so many questions about Steph's diagnosis, Raj's diagnosis, his traumas, and and a like to where you can ask all these questions, but I've clung to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Because the Lord our God has secrets known to no one, and I'm not accountable for them, but I am accountable forever for all that he has revealed to me. The Lord our God has unknowables. Those questions I won't arrive at an answer to in this life. And I can throw my hands up about what I don't know and what hasn't been revealed, or I can cling to what I, has been revealed, what I do know to be true, and what I do know he's done in our lives. And this has kept me sane when life's mysteries and questions would, would drive me mad because mystery can, it can rob our shalom in, in many ways, but for one, in our modern Western culture, it would tell us that to trust something that you don't fully understand is folly. Like, mystery is offensive to the modern mind. Like, we love mystery, the genre. We like law and order. We love Sherlock Holmes. But all these are plots where where you get the answers at the end of the episode after 60 minutes. We go 60 years, like, what's going on? (laughs) But actual mysteries, we don't like them. Again, they're offensive to the modern mind where we still hear echoes of the Enlightenment where it's like, you just give us time, we're going to figure this out. We got science, we're going to understand this. But I think of a scientist in the 90s who, after an 11-year Two telescope study of some star, I'm not going to butcher the name of, <laughs> it's about 40 syllables, but an 11-year two-telescope study of a star some 264 trillion miles from Earth that you can still see with the naked eye. And this, this scientist was trying to understand how this star could come into existence according to the laws of physics. And the scientist could simply say to a news reporter, I am a troubled theorist. <laughs> a star made for a troubled theorist. It made an actual expert in a field feel like they were delusional to call themselves an expert. How much greater the universe as a whole? How much greater the creator who created the universe? How insufficient are our theories and opinions to explain the unexplainable and describe the indescribable? It can be troubling, but it is reality. We'll never conquer all of God's mysteries. We have to come to peace with them. And specifically tonight, We have to come to peace with his reasons and his ways, with his sovereignty that we may never know in this life. Only when we are at peace with that will we fully have shalom and peace with God. But to pivot a bit, God isn't the only father figure named in scriptures. Matter of fact, in John 8, Jesus calls our enemy, Satan, the father of lies. And I think when we think of that, we probably picture of like egregious, bold lies. Bold-faced lies. But the more you look at Scripture, the more you realize half-truths are his native tongue, right? He comes on the scene as a serpent with a forked tongue, and he'll speak God's truth, and then in the same breath, little twisted portions, distortions of that truth to where you're clinging to something that's not even what God said. You see him do that to Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, don't eat. Eve's saying it's don't touch, right? God said, don't eat of this one tree. And the enemy's like, did he say you can't eat of all the trees in the garden? Like just little twists and distortions. And it robs them and all of creation of their perfect shalom in the garden. And he still does it today. And he used half-truths like Trojan horses. And we cling to them because they're from God's word. We did a series called Myth Busting for months in Suffolk. 
where we tackled so many different ways the enemy has twisted God's word and we misapply it. From women have no role in ministry or leadership to love should be colorblind to we shouldn't judge to we should forgive and forget. All these different misapplications. So what does this look like in the context of tonight? Well, the enemy can rob our shalom, our peace with God's sovereignty with a phrase that's uttered over and over in our culture and in the church that everything happens for a reason. The idea is everything is good if you just wait long enough. The reason will reveal itself. God just hasn't shown you it yet. And it's pulled from Romans 8.28, which speaks to God's sovereignty. And it powerfully reads that God works all things for good, which we treat as synonymous for everything happens for a reason. And we'll take a longer look at the verse in a minute, but this is our attempt to wrestle with the mystery of misery, which by definition is the presence of suffering and hardship in our lives. We don't like mystery and unanswered questions. We don't like it tenfold when it comes to our suffering. And it can rob our shalom. To be at peace with God's sovereignty, we want to remove the mystery. We want to know why. Answers to the questions involved with our suffering. We want formulas to avoid the suffering, and we want formulas to explain it away when it makes us uncomfortable. So often, when we're confronted with somebody suffering, rather than simply say, I'm sorry for what you're going through, simply recognizing the pain, we, we try to come up with platitudes and fortune cookie phrases that will explain away their suffering. Some years ago, I was walking through a husband who was watching his wife die from cancer. And he got home from the hospital and his neighbor was asking for an update. And at the end of the conversation, the neighbor said, well, hey, at least we know everything happens for a reason. <laughs> I, I've walked with another father who didn't know if his child was going to make it in that moment. And, and somebody was in a conversation with him and, and said, <laughs> what is it? God gives his hardest battles to his strongest soldiers. Like, I can tell you from conversations with those men that they did not feel encouraged in that moment. Matter of fact, one of them, big guy, confessed to, he was encouraged to lay hands on the person that was talking to him. Like, that was what feelings arose. You know, Philip Yancey wrote this, like, magnum opus on suffering, the problem of pain. He, he would reflectively look back on it, like, almost hating that he read it, because any time something bad happened, there was a bad event, he was the speaker they'd call in. But in this book, The Problem of Pain, an amputee claimed that my religious friends were the most depressing, irritating part of the entire experience. Why are we so bad at this? <laughs> it's not like people don't need the encouragement. We're just so often bad at giving it. And I would say it's because we desperately want our knowledge of God to turn into knowledge and answers, right? We want our faith to provide the answers for people's sufferings. So we step into this expert delusion that we can solve the mysteries of misery and suffering, and then we pack it all into like a little, again, fortune cookie phrase, that, a platitude that we can just hand somebody when we're uncomfortable with their suffering. But the tragedy is that the person in suffering so often begins to feel like a, a problem you have to solve rather than a person you genuinely want to love. Like I had a conversation with Steph recently because she receives these, these kind of comments all the time, and she Fresh out of one, a conversation like that, and just reflecting on it. It's like when kids give you art. The perspective is all off. Totally unsound technically, but they give it to you because it's out of love, right? They love you. It's just jacked, right? <laughs> but they love you. They love you. But here's what we do know that brings encouragement and hope. No matter what season we find ourselves, no matter what season you find yourself in, God is sovereign. He's in control, he's on the throne, and he's good. 
And he doesn't just know about every detail again because he's omniscient. No, he loves you and cares about every detail. And this everything happens for a reason, belief that everything is good if you wait long enough to find the reason comes from, again, this, this powerful verse, Romans 8:28, about God's sovereignty. It reads, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And it is a beautiful verse. Let's keep celebrating it, memorizing it, and printing it on things, right? It's an awesome verse. But let's meditate it on for a second and some important notes on what it doesn't say. Because Romans 8:28 doesn't say that everything that happens is good. The Bible speaks to both good and evil things happening in this life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, it says, God will bring every deed to judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Good or evil. Secondly, Romans 8:28 doesn't say everything happen that happens is from God. Again, in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, these deeds are done by me and you and people around us. God doesn't cause for evil to happen, but he did give us this precious gift of free will to where we make decisions and do deeds, both good and evil. And Romans 8, 28, lastly, also doesn't say that everything is complete with divine reasons why it happened. I had Starbucks cinnamon dolce coffee this morning. Vanessa probably could have guessed it because I run through that like crazy in the office. <laughs> I, I brewed myself a cup. I don't think that was God's like divine plan for my life. I don't think he cared what kind of coffee I drank or the egregious amount of it that I drank. And it's the same with so many other good or bad deeds that we do. But the encouraging truth that we do have in Romans 8.28 is that God is at work in all things. He's sovereign. And what he may not have done, he can redeem. You may say, well, those are some pretty small, nitpicky details, but that's true of most half-truths. The half-truths that derail us and can rob our shalom and peace with God's sovereignty. Like for me personally, every time I think of the fact that Raj started his life languishing in an orphanage and that when we talk to doctors and psychiatrists, they would say that all these developmental hardships he's had, all the developmental struggles he's had where he's going to, to therapists multiple times throughout the week and, and it's made his life hard, that he wasn't born with it. But it was because he was in an orphanage where these connections weren't being made. A totally unavoidable hand that he was dealt nonetheless that's going to affect the rest of his life. When I think about that, I get angry. And like a tea kettle where the steam starts screaming, tears can come. So don't tell me that that was good. Don't tell me that if I wait long enough, it'll be good. You'll see why it was, it was good. No, it was tragic. It was traumatic. Evil is evil. We don't have to be afraid to say that. God didn't give that to Raj because Raj is one of his strongest soldiers or just he's resilient. He didn't do that for a reason. We have to stop attributing the devil's best shot and his punches with God's plan. It'll rob us. It'll rob others of their shalom and their trust in God's sovereignty. Because if we take this line of thinking to its conclusion, then we're really saying that God causes the tidal waves, the earthquakes, your job loss, assaults, trafficking, that he's using all of that for a plan and a purpose. He's causing that for a plan and purpose. It makes God the author of suffering and perpetrator of evil. So the enemy loves for us to just pin everything on, on God's divine plan. He's, he's got his reasons because he knows it'll eventually give way to anger with God as well as slander of God. Like if this is happening, either he ain't God or God isn't good, right? Misery paired with mystery isn't easy. 
And when hardships come without identifiable causes, it's easy to just shrug it and pin it on. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason. It's kind of just like the way we can wash our hands of it. But we shouldn't wash our hands because there's three other reasons things may be happening. One of them is you, right? Three M's if you're taking notes because pastors have alliteration addictions. You can look at the mirror, <laughs> Mother Nature, and Murphy's Law. But first, the mirror. Sometimes we need an honest look in the mirror because what we chalk up as God's plan is self-inflicted. Bad choices have consequences, and so often everything happens for a reason is our abdication of accountability. Like if you buy a house and a car that you can't afford, and a couple years later you're in bankruptcy, that's like not a part of everything happens for a reason. The reason is you. <laughs> so we can use Romans 8.28 to gloss over irresponsibility and even sin when we think that this God is going to work everything for good is like a get-out-of-jail-free car. Like he's going to bail me out. He's going to work it for good. But this means when we experience the inevitable consequences or things don't get better, we get bitter. But we also have to look at two other M's. Again, Mother Nature, which is simply nature, but alliteration. Creation is broken. Romans 8 doesn't just talk about our state due to the fall. It talks about nature's, that it is longing for redemption. Nature's crazy. Nature, you scary, as, as the show would say. <laughs> and you, uh... But you'll see people, right, try to pin a hurricane hitting a coast on, on a, somebody's lifestyle or earthquakes as like warning shots from God. No, it's, it's nature being nature. Chill out. <laughs> Lastly, though, Murphy's Law, which you could call Adam's legacy, but again, alliteration. But Adam's legacy. Life is hard. And it's not just hardened soil and weeds when we're trying to plant a harvest. We live in a messy, chaotic, disordered world. Now, praise God, since Genesis, <laughs> the very first page of Genesis is bringing order out of chaos, but man, since the fall, hard things happen. Car accidents, broken appliances, diagnoses, sometimes things that can go wrong, go wrong. My ultimate point, though, again, we have to stop attributing the enemy's best shots, his punches with God's plans. We got to stop conflating Adam's legacy with God's sovereignty. We live in a broken world where there's going to be brokenness. Hurt people are going to hurt people. Life is going to be beautiful and it's going to be brutal. <laughs> There's going to be good. There's going to be evil. But this, we don't have to end on a depressing note like that because, hey, God is still sovereign. He's still orchestrating, redeeming, restoring those things. Look no further than Joseph. Joseph was orphaned by his own brothers, sold into slavery and left for dead. That would be bad enough, right? Then he gets accused of rape, wrongfully, goes to jail, gets set up for like early release and then forgotten. All this pain, <laughs> trauma. And then, though, he rises to prominence in Egypt. He's second only to Pharaoh. He's finally reunited with his brothers. They're asking for forgiveness. And he says in Genesis 50, 20, another powerful verse about God's sovereignty. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Again, like Romans 8, 28, we should look at what it doesn't say. He didn't call his brother's actions good or of God. He simply said that God was still at work in what happened, even evil, working it for good. He didn't cause Joseph's brothers to sin, but he, he, didn't, he didn't approve of it either. He didn't create the pain and trauma, but he did orchestrate its redemption. That's my hope, that what happens in life that's evil and without divine reason, God can still restore and God can still redeem. That's my trust. That's how I have peace with his sovereignty, even in the midst of all the craziness. And what is remarkable about Joseph is that in the midst of all these people wronging him, he lives this life of incredible integrity. 
And there's no point in the story where you're thinking, oh, that's because he has assurance that God is going to bail him out, right? Or, or, or this is going to all end with like some reciprocity where all of a sudden he's going to start thriving. No, he just in the midst of it all has this incredible integrity and character. Because what's important isn't finding a silver lining in our suffering. It's our obedience even in the midst of it. Again, Deuteronomy 29, 29, God has secrets known to no one. We're not accountable for them, but we and our children are accountable forever for all that he has revealed to us. Why? So that we may obey all the terms of these instructions. Like Steph's degenerative condition, it's called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It wreaks havoc on her body. It's not like if we wait long enough, at some point it's going to be a good thing. But here's the Romans 8.28, Genesis 50.20 in her life, that no matter how bad it may get, it won't thwart God's purposes in her life. In fact, Steph tells people all the time recently, and every time she says it, I'm kind of taken aback that she'd go through all of it again. Because I know what she's been through, and I know what she's going to go through. But for all her questions, all her angry prayers, right, she's found peace with her portion because through God's sovereignty, she's found her purpose. I'll never forget when we got the call about Raj's diagnosis for his brain malformation. We were literally getting in our SUV to drive to Steph's brain surgeon. And they're like, have you ever heard of the Chiari malformation? And it felt like a cruel joke. We were emotional the entire drive, and I'd like to think I was the one that said something profound at the end of it to just bring peace to that moment. But it was Steph that quoted Job and said, though he slay me, I'll trust him. That was the beginning of our finding peace with God's sovereignty even amidst hers and Raja's conditions. And to come to a close, man, soon, don't worry, I'm going to land the plane. I turned 40 this year. So I'm, at, I'm entering my era where I can look back on my life in decades. Like, at 21, I, I found Jesus. 20, my 20s were like remarkable spiritual growth, looking back. And it's a good thing because my 30s were crazy. <laughs> it, they, were, they were a gauntlet. Steph's diagnosis. Raj's adoption journey, Raj's diagnosis, Steph's first brain surgery, then her emergency brain surgery, dozens of procedures since then for both of them, and days where I, I didn't know if Steph was going to be with me the next one. It's been a crazy ride. And I wouldn't have scripted it that way if I was sovereign. But from the moment we got Raj's diagnosis, I tell people, I was telling people in the moment, like, you can see God's fingerprints all over this. But in the moment, I wanted to break his finger because this was what was happening. But when you step back, his sovereignty is remarkable. The way he orchestrated Raj landing in our family was nothing short of his sovereignty and a miracle. And, and it's like the same way the Israelites were called again and again and again throughout the Old Testament to remember God's miraculous deliverance through the Red Sea and deliverance from Egypt. Like that for us, Raj coming across the sea to be in our family with this white woman with the same diagnosis. That's God's sovereignty, even in the ugly stuff. You know, a lot of the sermon tonight has been about God's mystery producing humility, right? Rather than an expert delusion and trust rather than a hunger for clarity. But mystery should also produce awe and wonder. And that wonder should produce worship. Life is gonna have good and evil, joy and pain. It's gonna be beautiful and it's gonna be brutal. But seeing how God's sovereignty has worked through it all, the good and the evil, and hasn't forsaken us in it, like that's how I can worship tonight with my hands up like God is so good, so good and so sovereign. Who remembers the old worship song? Madeline's actually going to lead us in it in a minute, I think. What is it, I stand in awe? 
You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depths of your love? You are beautiful beyond description, majesty enthroned above. So I stand, I stand in awe of you. Holy God, to whom all praise is due, I stand in awe of you. See, if we'll take it, a small step beyond throwing your hands up and saying, I'm a troubled theorist, is, is putting your hands up in worship. The revivalist John Wesley once said of Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the ways and judgments of God are oftentimes hidden from us, unsearchable by our shallow capacities, and a matter for adoration, not inquiry. I love that thought of God's mysteries and things we'll never understand as, as a matter for adoration, not inquiry. Sometimes God is so big <laughs> and his ways are so other that you simply have to stand back, shut your mouth, and stand in awe. Or take it a step further and sing in worship. So they're going to lead us in worship on the way out. But can we stand? Jesus, I thank you for your ultimate words of trust on the cross. That, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, God, I pray that no matter where we find ourselves tonight, mountaintop, valley, anywhere in between, whatever emotion we're feeling in this moment, God, that we would simply say, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, no matter whether I have a good day or a bad day as a father, at the end of the day, Raj just wants to be in my hands, <laughs> cuddle in our bed. And God, I pray that we will be reminded of, of your same love and just assurance, God, that we can, not only do you meet us when we wanna put our life in your hands, but you hold us. And God, I pray that no matter again the circumstance, we'd simply be able to, to say those words into your hands. I commit my spirit. I commit my life. I commit my decisions. I commit my perspectives. We commit our obedience, God, to what you have revealed, what you have shown us about who you are, what you have shown us by what you've done in our lives. God, I pray that we would cling to those things. And God, when there are those mysteries, those questions we can't get the answer to, we don't know the answer to, we may never get the answer to. That can we, we can throw our hands up and not just say I'm troubled, but we can throw our hands up in worship, remembering that you're a sovereign over all things. You're on the throne and you're in control. And that's why we praise you right now, Jesus. We know that right now you are seated at the right hand of the Father. And we praise you for everything you've done for us in Jesus' name.